Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand that you remember as a young girl making an impact on you? The brand was Gotcha. I was a child of immigrants. We didn't have so much money. So I was wearing a lot of my sister's hand-me-downs and there were just like a couple of items that were really like, okay, these are cool. And one of them was this pair of neon colored gotcha shorts. There were other kids that had like fancier clothes and everything. And and there was one day where I was wearing a shirt. It was a different brand. It wasn't gotcha. It was a shirt with a, a brand name on it. And this girl comes up to me from behind and she grabs me by the shirt and lifts up the tag and says, is it even really that brand? Because she knew oh, I didn't wow. have much money. Mm-hmm. She questioned whether I really had it. And I think in that moment, I learned like both the power of brands on the yeah. on the bad side and also yeah. the power of brands on good and, and just how it can really make people feel um, either in or out. So I would say because of that, I'm also sort of the reluctant marketer. Maybe that's why it makes me good at marketing is I'm always asking these questions of like, are we doing good or are we not? Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Shani Benzur, the Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at Crunchbase, the leading provider of private company prospecting and research solutions. Said another way, Crunchbase provides intelligent prospecting software powered by live company data. And it's working. 70 million people annually visit Crunchbase, More than 4,000 venture capital firms use the platform. And get this, the company just closed a Series D financing round of $50 million. Crunchbase was founded in 2007 by Michael Arrington as a place to track the startups his parent company, TechCrunch, was writing about. AOL bought TechCrunch and Crunchbase in 2010. Full disclosure, I was on the AOL board then, but Crunchbase went private again in 2015. My guest, Shani, is no stranger to tech. Following a degree from University of California, San Diego, she went to work at a PR firm founded by ex-Apple executives. From there, she has held roles at Salesforce, NVIDIA, Dropbox, and now in her first CMO role with Crunchbase. This is my conversation with an outgoing introvert who just loves watching television. We'll talk about that, Shani Benzur. I am sitting in San Diego recording this podcast You are a graduate of UC San Diego. Why did you ever leave this beautiful city? Oh, man, that is a tough question. I think I realized as soon as I graduated that my pace of life is faster than I was having when I was living in San Diego. But if you ask me where I want a vacation and probably where I want to retire, San Diego is definitely top five. Now, you studied economics and also Middle Eastern studies at UCSD. But over the last 15 years, you've built quite an impressive career path in tech. As you look backwards at when this career path started, was that intentional or was it a bit of serendipity and a bit of intention, as, as most things are in life? Yeah, I was just talking to some friends about how I wish uh, high school guidance counselors did less of what color is my parachute and more of how much money can I make in the next six, 10, 20, 30 years in my life? Because I think I might've made some different decisions, but who's to say? So I, I graduated from college and my first job was actually executive compensation consulting. And I don't do anything related to that now. (laughs) Uh, So I was using more of the economic side of things. uh, And I kind of realized very shortly after starting in that position and having um, some pretty intense first job experiences that 
that most likely my path was elsewhere. Um, and a friend of mine was working at a really boutique PR agency called Cross Taylor and Associates um, that is founded and run by two women who are former Apple executives and incredible communicators, super well connected in the Valley. And she was like, why don't you try coming here? Like, I know you like tech. You know, this is very early days. I mean, we were among the first to try using at that point, the Facebook uh, when we were in college. So it was kind of like early days of what internet tech could be um, in the second round. And I joined them and it was just like lightning. You know, for me, it felt amazing. It was getting to understand what these new tech companies were doing, getting to meet the executives there, translating complex technology into simple to understand terms, relating at that point, I was more on the PR side. So relating to media and delivering that message. Uh, and it just, for me, was kind of like, I know I'm always going to be in this world in some way um, and somehow always serving as a as a translator. So you worked for two former Apple global PR execs as an early experience in your career. What did you learn from those people who had experience at what's still obviously one of the most amazing companies in the world? Yeah. So their names were Barbara Krause and Betty Taylor. And I think that they very much put me on the path to where I am today. And I'm extremely grateful for them. Um, Some of the things that I learned from them are one, relationships are everything. I mean, all of almost all of their clients were kind of people who had at one point worked at Apple and had then gone on to start their own companies. And so I, I don't even think I realized how lucky I was in terms of the caliber of people that I got to work with. Um, Mike Homer was an example of that. Um, Jeff Hawkins, Donna Dubinsky, you know, you're, you're talking about people who founded Handspring at that time, and they're working on, you know, machine intelligence long before machine intelligence became what it is today. Um, and that was because they had developed trust with, with their colleagues and also um, trust with the media. You know, they never kind of did anything for a quick buck. It was always long-term relationship, really depth of understanding and investing in people. And they kept the agency small. You know, they made sure that it was what they wanted it to be. They gave people like me an opportunity. You know, I was, uh, I would say, a scrappy young person <laughs> when I joined. And they invested in me and they gave me a lot of um, a lot of visibility. And I think a lot of that sticks with me today about how if you just give somebody who's hungry a chance, they can show you what they're capable of and always make sure that you keep in mind that those relationships don't end as soon as you leave. You know, like there's no such thing, at least in tech, of like ability to burn a bridge and survive. You just can't. The world is so small mm-hmm. in this field. It's a good lesson in every industry, frankly. I left PNG, I don't know, 13 years ago, started my own small business, and it's all relationships. The people I've worked with throughout my career, they're the clients now, and they're the people who've called. I've, I've done very little marketing. It's all been word of mouth. So relationships are so key, and that's fabulous for young people to hear that. Yeah, I, I listened to one of your most recent podcasts where you're speaking with a former colleague, and it was just, you know, you could tell that you had such a shared history together and that you, know, you both went in different directions and you've, you've achieved a lot in your careers, but that you still had that fondness for one another. And you know, that means you'll probably end up working together again in the future. That was Mathiel, I think, Delhom with LVMH. Yeah. Yes. Now, your career path to an outsider like myself looks like it's been up, 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 up. So, have there been any setbacks? on that path? And if so, what did you learn from that? I think there've been some jungle gym versus up. There's been some sideways movement. Um, Like I said, that first job out of college, I would say it it burst in a cloud of flames, maybe (laughs) is the best way to describe (laughs) it. It's a good metaphor. I get it. (laughs) Um, And I think it was, it was hard. You know, you're you live your whole life where if you follow X rule, then Y will happen. So you go to school, you get good grades, you get to go to college, you get some scholarships, you can graduate from college, and then you should get a good job. And then your whole life is set. And you get to that point where you get your first job, you get your first paycheck, and you realize things are not as they appear. You know, it's not working the way that you thought it would. And then to just kind of like not be successful after having so much success is a tough pill to swallow, but a really important one too. In fact, I remember when I was in college and doing campus recruiting, there was somebody from a uh, consulting firm that will not be named, uh, but he told me, I feel like you just need to get stomped on a little bit. Mm. And look, do I think that that is necessarily what you should be telling college people who are, are getting ready for the rest of their lives? No, but I think there's a little bit of truth to what he was saying in that those 
that difficult moment taught me a lot about what's to come. You know, the difficulty I had in that first job taught me, look, if it doesn't fit, you need to be honest with yourself about how much you can take and then make a decision about whether this is the right place for you. And that's when I made a, a pretty, you know, serious left turn in my career out of what was going to be a more um, financial related career and into more of a kind of marketing and comms related career. And then after that, there were a couple of other kind of those, we'll call them inciting incidents where uh, I was working at another PR agency and it was kind of the dawn of social media. And I just saw the social media group within the agency and they were doing so much cool stuff and they were working with such cool clients. And I was like, I just got it. I got to get in there. I have to be a piece of that. And so I started, you know, creeping in doorways, just kind of hanging around like, what you working on? Do you guys need any help? And I kind of ingratiated myself with them and, and just started offering to do more and more and more. And then I got more and more of the social media responsibility And I remember I had a conversation with somebody where I wanted to switch to social media full time. And again, it was still relatively new. And and somebody pretty senior said, you know, I think that's going to hurt your career for the rest of your life if you make this decision. Like really PR is forever and social media may not be or it may just be a small thing. And I just knew like even if even if this whole social media thing doesn't work out, I just find so much more. Um, fulfillment and excitement to wake up every day and work on it than I do on the traditional PR side, because I think I'm an outgoing introvert. So like I enjoy being behind a keyboard. It's a little scarier and harder for me to be in front of people. And, you know, I was working crazy hours on the social media side. One of my clients was um, Sony Computer Entertainment in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I was waking up at 3.30, 4 a.m. to assist the community manager in London. And I loved it. I was just having the time of my life. And so I told him, like, I, I understand and I appreciate your advice because I think he was coming from a good place. You know, all of these folks who have given me somewhat traumatic advice were, are coming from a good place. Yeah. But I, I just said, you know, it's a gamble I'm willing to take. Like for me to wake up every day, I would rather work on the thing that brings me joy than the thing that may or may not be here for the long haul. Mm-hmm. And that was also really pivotal in my career because then I, I continued down that kind of social media path for quite some time. It's a good principle in life, right? Yeah, work absolutely. Work gives you joy and usually happiness and success and money follow that. Usually, not always. Yeah, I'm I'm like, let's be honest, I'm super lucky and privileged that I have been able to get different opportunities where others may not have. And and I and I acknowledge that, but I think I have been able to see when new opportunities were coming my way and take those gambles mm-hmm. in that moment. Like, you know, I, I went from Krauss Taylor to a larger agency, which is where I learned about social media. And then I went from there to NVIDIA, which was a massive GPU company. And I learned about what it means to work in an organization that has multiple lines of business with multiple different customer segments, with major cross-functional teams and matrix organizations. And then I, I went from there to Salesforce, where I made another kind of shift And I learned about what it means to run the entire digital marketing stack, not just social media, but to do it for sort of an interesting thing, which at that time was, how do you sell jobs? Uh, Because Salesforce was going through this massive employee growth. And what they needed to do was find a way to make a name for themselves in all these markets that they were recruiting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then ultimately, one of those kind of more sideways moves versus up was when I went from Salesforce to Dropbox. A friend of mine was working at Dropbox's friend that I had gone to college with, which again, this is like part of the, the privilege, the privilege that I, I I went to school, the privilege that somebody I know worked at this company. Uh, but he was telling me like, hey, Dropbox is really, really great. And if you could come and start the social media program here, I think it would be amazing. And I think I even took a, a pay cut when I moved over, but I was just so excited about the product that Dropbox had. I was excited about the community. I was excited about the potential of engaging with that community. And I and another woman were their first social media hires, you know, the first time they ever had one. And obviously it came right on the heels of a major crisis where there was an outage in Dropbox and they finally realized like, ooh, we should probably make this someone's job. So that was one of those times where I just said, I'm willing to take this the, the lateral move in exchange for what could be a bigger upside, working at a company that I'm really excited about and a product that I'm really excited about and that customers are excited about. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then 
the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Of all those experiences, which one for you personally was the most developmental? Was it Dropbox? Before the role you're in now, which we'll talk about in a minute. Each job took me through another chapter of my evolution. And I think each job also, I was lucky enough to have managers and mentors who uh, I could learn from by their example. I think at Dropbox, I had the most like job breadth. So in most of the other job functions, I, I stuck to one or two different things mm-hmm. and maybe I got better and better and, and my, my knowledge, depth of knowledge increased. With Dropbox, just the nature of working at a startup is you have lots of opportunities to try and learn different job functions. And so I think I definitely got more of the expansive experience at Dropbox and also crisis communication. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> You get that with startups too, don't you? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It was one of those things where it's like, you really got to see how the sausage is made and realize it's a miracle that we have a working economy at all. (laughs) That's the way with every company. I think it's all sausage Mm -hmm. making. It all looks Mm -hmm. simpler from the outside, right? Absolutely. So you work for a private company now, but you've worked as you just went through your career path with large public companies and other private companies. So What would you advise to people listening right now who may be going through a job change or starting their career? What You've had a a front row seat at this. What are the pros and cons of working at a private versus a public company? This is one of my favorite topics. And I think, you know, if I ever had a second act, it would be in kind of career advising. Because again, there's all these things I wish I would have known long ago. So for me, it comes down to what's your objective? What is most important to you? And that's probably the same thing I say to every person on my team about anything that we're working on. And the same thing is true for their career. I think working at a small company or a small agency or a startup, the best thing that you get is tons of exposure and trial by fire. And you just get to fill a lot of different roles. So you get to try a lot of different things and see a lot about how that sausage is made. The hard part about working at a small company or an early stage startup is you don't always get to see what kind of excellence looks like Mm -hmm. because the goal is not to get to perfection. The goal is to get to MVP. What's the minimum viable product and then move on from there. So if what you want to be is an expert or to see how the experts at the top of their class do the thing, sometimes it's better to go do that at a large company. A fun experience with Dropbox was I got to be there pre-IPO through post-IPO and see some of that evolution, see how the hiring changed. But for somebody who's early in their career, there's a lot of benefit in in going to a startup because you can move up really quickly, but you don't sometimes you learn some bad habits, or going to a big company and finding a mentor who can teach you what great looks like, and then you can bring that back with you to to a smaller company. Yeah, makes sense. I want to now talk a bit more about Crunchbase and your role there. And I've heard you say in another venue that it's very important for everyone to be able to say what a company is in 12 words or less. Not 10, not 14, but 12 or less. So can you do that for us right now for Crunchbase? Yes. Crunchbase is a prospecting platform that helps dealmakers search less for deals and spend more time closing those deals. Close to 12 words. (laughs) I mean, I can dig into what that means. I think Crunchbase is one of these, it's kind of another fun thing is working at a company that people have heard of, but they have a kind of outdated notion of what it is. So, you know, Crunchbase started out as this footnote at the bottom of TechCrunch articles. Mm -hmm. And then it was spun out as a standalone company about seven years ago. And it didn't even have a product yet. You know, they, they built their first product six to 12 months after spin out. And that was the first time that there was actually a product that Crunchbase sold. And the DNA was really talking to founders and investors and kind of like the uh, 
the startup ecosystem about funding and helping founders get discovered by putting their company profile on Crunchbase. And it's evolved now to be almost like the LinkedIn for companies, where like if you have a company that wants to be known, you have to be on Crunchbase. And if you are a deal maker who's trying to connect to somebody at those companies, you want to use Crunchbase. Just like we look at LinkedIn and say, if there's a human being at a company, I want to, I want to find them on LinkedIn. But what Crunchbase lets you do, especially now that there's this kind of like economic unrest is focus just on the companies that are actually growing. And now that there's so many companies that are doing layoffs and you know some are even shuttering their doors, having that visibility at the account level ensures that you're not reaching out to people who are unemployed, that you're actually reaching out to the people who are working at a company that is successful. I recently had on the podcast Mel Selker, the CMO at LinkedIn, and she's so impressive, such an interesting story personally, and such an interesting company these days. What do you learn most from LinkedIn? Because I, as I researched your company. I knew a bit about it, but I, I kept seeing parallels and similarities to LinkedIn. You're just maybe a little bit earlier in your journey. So what do you admire and learn from LinkedIn? I'm a big fan of approaching everything from a, a humble perspective and saying like, look, this company is a multi-billion dollar company that got acquired for billions of dollars. There's a lot here for me to learn from. And I think some of the key things that I see is they have a, a, a similar thesis, which is can you build software on top of best-in-class data? They had this best-in-class people data where they incentivize people to want to update their own data. And that's kind of what Crunchbase is trying to do. You've got this best-in-class company data and the people behind those companies want to keep it updated because they get a benefit from it. And then I think what LinkedIn has done really well is they've identified that you can have not one, not two, but you can have multiple use cases for how to kind of monetize that offering. You know, LinkedIn has Recruiter. That was the first stop. Mm -hmm. Then they have now Sales Navigator, Marketing Solutions. You know, they've started building out the education side of it. And I think there's a lot of that opportunity that exists for Crunchbase too. You know, we're starting out with, you know, started with the investor deal-making and now it's kind of like the sales deals deal-making, but you can imagine us moving into any other of those B2B deal-making motions as well in the future. And I think that's that really is a model that LinkedIn pioneered and, and it creates a huge opportunity for others in the market as well. You know, and we work alongside LinkedIn. Like if you go to different company profiles on LinkedIn, you see their crunch based data on there. Right. So you see there's this like very strong symbiosis as well. Well, you must be having a really fun time right now in your role. You recently closed on a funding round, a Series D, where you raised a whopping $50 million on an oversubscribed round. So Congratulations. That's a huge achievement to you and the team. Thank you so much. I I am beyond excited and proud. And, you know, there's a little bit of like crunch base on crunch base in that we, we use our own data to see what the trends have been in the funding landscape. And we know that particularly for late stage companies, there's been a major pullback in funding. So to actually be able to close this round, and, and as you mentioned, for it to be oversubscribed, um, is a major testament to what we're building. Now, what's it like to be the CMO and Chief Growth Officer as you are going through a major funding round? Tell us what that was like. Well, I feel that I am—I have a major sleep debt that I need to <laughs> make good on. Um, but it's been exciting, right? We we launched a whole new suite of software products in the middle of 2021. We poured a bunch of fuel on our growth engine. We found new ways to monetize. Um, we have a, a product-led growth motion that has both self-serve and direct sales as a part of it. So finding ways to kind of unify, bringing those two motions together, telling our company's story to investors. You know, one of the things that happens when you're in the thick of just trying to you know, grow revenue and accelerate is you forget to zoom out and think about, well, what is our, our narrative? What is our mm -hmm. company story? So being in charge of both growth and marketing gives me this bird's eye view to be able to say, okay, here's how I pour money in, but also here's how I connect with people's hearts. Here's how I tell that story. And a lot of that happened through the process of fundraising and you know, getting ready to actually launch the news and seeing how much we had advanced since our Series C. I've been at Crunchbase for just under four years and, and I was here when we closed our Series C and, and seeing what we've done differently now um, around the announcement. It's just exciting to see that evolution. So I am tired, but I it's that kind of tired that you smile versus that tired where yeah. you're like, oh, I don't want to get up today. Yeah, there's a difference, right? There's a big difference. Absolutely. Well, you look great, right? Thank you look you. like you're recovering. 
So I have, I, I, I have vacations planned. <laughs> anywhere fun? I moved to Washington State during the pandemic. And so I'm going to be doing a little trip to Lake Chelan. I've heard the the folks around here call it shalanigans. So I look forward to experiencing some shalanigans. Excellent. Good. Well, <laughs> well, well, good luck on that. I hope you get away. Hey, I, I want to go down, go a little bit deeper on something you just said about telling your story. I find, in fact, I talked to LinkedIn about this a couple of weeks ago. Why are so many companies so poor at that? And I think a lot of startups are very poor at that. And it seems like such a fundamental thing, which I don't know, I think if you put your mind to it, comes relatively easy. So why are so many people struggling with that? And what have you learned about telling your story that has been effective? Because obviously it has. I think that everyone struggles to know what's special about themselves, you know, like as individuals, right? If someone asks you, Mm -hmm. oh, tell me a little bit about yourself. There's nothing that can make a person clam up more than that single question. And it's like, who knows you better than you? And yet you're so close to yourself that you're unable to take that kind of unbiased third-party perspective to say, okay, well, these are the top three things that make me unique. These are the top three things that make me special. And these are the top three ways I'm going to get even more special in the future. And I think when you work at a startup, so many people feel that they are the company because they are actually what is building the company and making it move forward. And so if you ask them, okay, what makes our company special? There's that that clamming up happens for them as well. And they're just really, really, really busy. They're busy trying Mm -hmm. to keep the company moving forward. So I think, you know, for a lot of startups, that's the situation is they're too busy building the ship to be writing the marketing copy about the ship. But to your point, it's a must. You have to do it because you're also evolving so quickly that if you don't have a narrative to help bring your customers and and partners along, they're going to leave. They're going to leave or they're going to lose interest. And it's, it's really, really challenging to actually find the right message for the right audience. So my heart goes out to everybody who's struggling with this. I think, you know, it's, it's a constant work in progress and we're figuring it out at Crunchbase as well. So I won't say that we're perfect by any means. And like I said, we have that unique challenge of also trying to shift perceptions from, you know, I know you as this thing, but now you want me to see Mm -hmm. you as this other thing. What did you learn uh, in doing it yourself? I mean, is it about talking to your employees, talking to your clients, looking at other companies. So any tips on doing, because you have just done this and I know it's never over, but you just did it and raised a lot of money. So what did you learn about the process? I think the first thing is know who you're speaking to. And then, and then there's a bunch of steps that follow that. So an example is if you're a startup that's trying to fundraise and you're trying to come up with what your narrative for investors is, you have to know what is the most important thing to investors at that point in time. And we were fundraising as the economy was having a major shift. And so, you know, if you would have fundraised at the end of 2021, it was all about hype. How hyped was your brand? How excited is the community? You know, you didn't necessarily need as many of the the business metrics. I actually think that's not a great way for people to fundraise, because if you look at the kind of overinflated valuations, those were not tied to business economics. Mm -hmm. And now a lot of those companies are experiencing layoffs or they're shuttering. Now, the fundraising landscape is that investors care about things like your burn rate, your not growing at all costs. They want to know exactly what is the cost of your growth. What is your LTV to CAC ratio? You know, what are your profit margins? These are things that matter. And so for us, it was a matter of how do we identify what our growth segment is? How do we communicate the efficiency of that growth? And then how do we show them what the prospects are for the future of that same type of growth? And luckily for us, and particularly with this funding round, there was a narrative around the path to profitability. There was a narrative around the fact that we have a product-led growth engine with a massive top of funnel uh, and millions of people who come to our website every month. So that those were kinds of the things that went into our narrative, coupled with, you know, what is your ideal customer segment? How are they reacting to your product? But again, I think that's different depending on when you fundraise. Mm -hmm. I think if you are fundraising in the next six to 12 months, you should be looking uh, at those really strong business metrics and having a narrative around your growth segment, around your target customer, and around the demand for your products in the midst of an economic downturn. Yeah. 
And your value, right? Absolutely. Demand and value. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you're talking to customers, it's a different thing, right? So right now you have a lot of customers who work at companies who are pulling back on their budgets. So how are you able to show the ROI of your product to them? Because what they're thinking about is my manager told me I don't have as much money. So now I have to think about which of my tools I'm going to keep. Well, I want to make your life easier. So the narrative I'm going to tell you is around what the ROI per dollar you spend, you're going to get back from my product. And then it kind of goes on and on from there. Like what is the, you know, for our our partners, part of the narrative is around how many eyeballs are actually on Crunchbase. So partnering with Crunchbase actually means escalation of awareness for your brand too. So everything is kind of more around what is in it for you? What do you care about? I will tell you what you care about and I'll leave everything else out and we can get to that later if it's if it's important. There is a lot of learning what you just rattled through in the last three or four minutes. A lot of learning for everyone who is struggling to tell their story at their company better. So thank you for that. Anything I can do to help, because I think we're all, you know, especially people who are in the kind of revenue organizations mm-hmm. or who are in the marketing organizations, we're in for a tough ride. Yeah, we are. And I think it's going to be all about how we are flexible, how we are meeting the market where it's at. And just knowing that the things that worked six months ago very well may not work in the next six months. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. This is your first CMO role, and you've been in the role about 16 months. You've been at the company longer, of course. You were an internal promote, if you will. Did you feel prepared for this role? I think so. I mean, it's funny because a lot of my responsibilities were the same before. We were trying to keep the company really flat. And then at a certain point, it was clear, you know, we are serving in these CXO roles, so let's make it official. Mm -hmm. For me, from day one, I've been accountable for a very large percentage of our company's revenue, partially through the self-serve and again, through the demand generation on our direct sales. And, you know, I started when there were four people on the marketing team and now we're over 30 people. So I felt prepared because for me, it came down to what are you holding me accountable for? Our, Our CEO, Jagger, what is Jagger holding me accountable for? And am I, am I comfortable owning those things? And I am. I want to be a brand steward. I want to be a a growth rainmaker. I want to be a culture leader internally. And I want to help the strategy for how we're going to get to whatever the next stage is as a company. So for me, it felt like a a pretty natural progression. But I I think if you would have asked me before it happened, I have a a lot of the imposter syndrome and the feeling of like, I can't do this. I don't know if I can do this. But so far, so good. How do you get over your imposter syndrome? We all have it to some extent. We all have it, you know? I don't think anybody, I mean, I don't get over it. Maybe other people do, and I would love to hear their advice. I don't think I get over it. I think I tried to look it in the eyes and understand it. So one of the things I felt has changed in me is I would enter into a meeting with uncertainty and questioning all of my ideas. And now I enter into a meeting and I discern between which of my perspectives are informed by experience and which of my perspectives are truly hypotheses. And then I give the other people in the meeting that context so that they can make a decision about how they react to what I'm saying. Because I think at one point, you know, based on my title, people were giving me a lot of respect. And so I was saying things kind of offhandedly and they were reacting to them like it was written in stone. And I realized I have to be much clearer about when I'm saying something as Shani, the CMO with nearly two decades of experience versus Shani who gets really excited brainstorming about this or that. And none of her ideas are actually going to be that good in the next 15 minutes, but she still wants to rattle them off to you. And I think that helped with the imposter syndrome because I got to be honest about the things I did know and the things that I didn't know. And I think that actually creates a safer space for other people to do the same. What kinds of things do you talk to your CEO Jagger about? 
What's your what are your what are your standing agenda items, or do you have any, or is it is it more you're talking every half hour or something? Well, for the last six months, it's been almost exclusively preparation for and execution of the Series D fundraise. Um, but on a normal a normal week, a non fundraising time, we're talking about a combination of things. One is bottom line revenue numbers for the business. We meet as a kind of executive team and we talk about, are we hitting our targets? What are the reasons we are? What are the reasons we aren't? And what's the right path forward? Um, There's also, you know, if there's anything that we need to position Dragger in a thought leadership forum. So helping him think through the narratives. Again, a lot of this, this storytelling is he has the seed of the idea. And then I help translate that into something that we can use over and over and over again. We're lucky in that Jag is a really gifted storyteller in and of his kind of his own world. And he's also a really strong product visionary. So those things give me a lot of the raw ingredients and then I can just kind of put a a sheen on it. Um, But it's a combination of the business growth, the story, and also what is our strategy for the future and, and the employees at Crunchbase? Because we're still a relatively small executive team and we just hired our first chief people officer. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of us kind of figuring out how do we create the culture that we want as a company and what are our core values? So we kind of cover on that high level strategy, you as a thought leader, and then our business revenue. It's, it's pretty much all the things that are aligned with what I'm responsible for. But I, I have a lot of sympathy for Jagger because I think about how much I have to stretch across many different topics and I am but one of, you know, several different pillars of the company that he has to think about. So I try to keep it pretty high level. Mm-hmm. You just, you talked about, it's a relatively small leadership team and you talk a lot about the culture you want to create. Could you say a few words about that, about the culture you do want to create and what you're learning as you do that? Yeah. I think for most of us, for Jagger, he's a first time CEO, you know, I'm a first time CMO. There's a couple other execs that have already done the thing before, but for most of us, this is our first or second time. And I think we're all a little bit idealistic and bringing in the the dreams of what we would have wanted in the past and how we can bring them to life at Crunchbase. So some of those things include, you know, a desire for very high level transparency. And we have that, we have Friday town halls where we we have a, an anonymous Q&A Slack channel and we read every single question without exception. And we try to answer every single one. And I know that may not be what we can do, you know, when we're a company of 10,000 plus, but as a company of about 200 people, we can, and we do actually have those conversations. And, you know, I think about my own career and I think like that was not, <laughs> that was not always the level of transparency that could be handled. And it feels good as an employee, you get a little bit more confident. You know, we share everything from our board meeting recaps, our quarterly financials. We gave them updates throughout the Series D fundraising process. You know, we talk about what we're seeing in the economy at large. So that transparency is very much a part of our culture. I think the other thing that we really prize is this kind of lack of hierarchical project management and collaboration. Obviously people want to have job titles and people want to move up and we're still going to help them with their careers, but there's something to being able to get into a room of people agnostic of whatever their job title is and just look at a problem and say, what is the best way for us to solve this together? And that just feels so good. Like there's nothing I love more than somebody who just started a week ago with fresh eyes and looks around and asks a question like, why do we do this this way? And everyone just goes, dang, I don't know. We've just been doing it that way for so long, but you're right. We should change it. So I think that kind of, you know, collaborative flat team spirit is something that is also really, um, really important to us and you know, you see that play out through the fact that we have like a very lively Slack community and we pretty much don't use email at all. Good for you. Hey, I, I was talking to another CMO on a recent podcast and I asked her to explain curiosity to me and how it comes to life in her life. And one of the first things she said was, I make sure that I talk to new people in our company and those that are here two, three, four weeks and just ask them, what are your impressions? What could we do better at? What 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 are we blind to? And she said those simple questions and remaining curious with new employees helps her enormously in her role. 
I believe it. I mean, I remember what I was like when I first got to Crunchbase. I had a million ideas. Mm -hmm. Not to say that I still don't have a million ideas, which people may or may not like about working with me, but the ideas were unencumbered before. You know, once you start learning the why you do the thing Mm -hmm. the way you do, it almost starts creating these mental blocks on creativity. And so somebody who comes in and isn't is not weighed down by that baggage can bring so many cool ideas into the fore. I have heard you describe yourself as part storyteller, part data geek, and part psychologist. Which one of those three parts of your personality are really in overdrive right now? They are definitely all competing with each other all the time. I think, you know, with the proximity to the launch of our Series D, I'm definitely in storyteller mode. Mm Mm-hmm looking at questions from media, looking through our blog post, our press release, the messaging that we're sending to our customers, our community. So it's it's been a lot about messaging. Um, but, you know, shortly after all those things go live, I'm going to dip right back into the analysts. And I think one of the things that I recognize throughout this fundraising process is I have to get back to building more and more kind of culture and love and cohesion within my own team. So that's where the psychologist kind of kicks into gears. Are people feeling fulfilled? After everybody grinds really hard for a long period of time, once they get a second to take a breath, they start asking hard questions. So am I going to be able to be there to answer those questions for them? So that's where the psychologist will will kick in as well as making sure that people are feeling happy and cared for and fulfilled. We're going to move to the creative brief right now. And you gave me the first question I'm going to ask you in the creative brief. And that is, it's a tough one. What is special about you, Shani? This is a hard one for all of us to talk about. And we have to then talk about our companies and what's special. But I want to ask you, what is special about you? And what have you learned about what is special about you? Like I said, I truly feel... (laughs) I'm sorry for this. I feel viscerally just uncomfortable (laughs) in my body. I feel uncomfortable with this question. And I think, you know, I'll I'll share a little bit about why I think I feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because I think that's a commentary on something bigger that's happening in the world. And then maybe I'll try to throw some things out. I feel uncomfortable talking about myself because as a woman, I've been raised to like be seen and not heard, which is obviously wrong. And I'm trying very hard to buck that. And I think most people know me as, as outspoken, but I feel uncomfortable saying things about myself because it almost feels immodest. But Mm -hmm. if a friend of mine or a colleague were asked the same question, I would tell them the 500 things that I think are incredible about them and that they should like sing it loud, sing it proud. I am admitting in this moment that it is still very hard for me to do that because in the same breath that I could tell you something unique about me, I could tell you 10 things that aren't great. So I'm still struggling but I'm going to try to do it because I know it's the right thing to do. And I know that I want I appreciate to that. kind of set up, show other I hate, people that I hate this okay. question when it's posed to me too. And we have different backgrounds. We're a different generation. I still have trouble with it. So I have empathy for you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So I'll, I'll try to answer the question. I think something that is special about me is I am not afraid to question authority and the status quo. And I think I often do that while considering what other people in the room may also be wondering about. Like, I'm happy to be the person who takes the first step. And some of the ways that I like to do that is I'm not afraid to say, I don't understand what this means. Can you explain it to me? And I think sometimes, especially at work, it can feel unsafe Mm -hmm. to ask that question. So I'm, I'm not afraid to speak up and also speak for speak about what I believe in and speak out on behalf of the people that I care about, often people who may not have a voice to speak out on their own. That's the kind of existential what makes me special. I think in the workplace, what makes me special is the fact that I do have skills in both the creative storytelling side and the performance conversion analytics mm-hmm. side of the house. And typically most CMOs go up one, yep. one of those paths and not both. I think it was a great answer. Thanks. No, really. And it's both of those are really powerful in your role as CMO. Yeah. I'll still be anxious about this after this. (laughs) I hope maybe you can ask this to me someday and I'll get through the same discomfort. Okay. You loved watching TV as a kid and you still love it today. Why did you and do you love TV so much? I truly love TV. 
so much. I I was a, a latchkey kid, you know, I was at home alone from a very young age and TV was my babysitter. And I think, you know, I'm also the child of immigrants. So I learned a lot about American culture. I learned a lot about just like growing up in life from TV. And I think it also taught me just the kind of way that a story can make you feel something you know, you can watch a comedy, it can make you laugh. You can watch a, a high suspense thriller, it can make you nervous. You can watch a horror movie, it makes you terrified. In fact, I will not watch anything horror related because it's too terrifying. And I think I have an overactive imagination, but it's just, it's the person in the room that you can rely on to help you feel whatever way you want to feel in a very low stake environment. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people talk about TV can rot your brain and maybe Maybe it can, but so far, I think my brain is fully intact and it brings me a lot of joy. So why not? What do you think is the single most crucial characteristic for a successful CMO? Jim, you just don't throw softballs, do you? I don't. There's no softballs in my interviews. <laughs> I think going forward, CMOs will have to be good at measuring impact to business metrics. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is, you know, I think there was a time at which the cool factor of what we did was enough to carry us through to success. And those fancy free days are over. And now it is all about how we can be strategic about our initiatives, how we can be impactful and supportive of the business so that we can actually unlock the budgets that we need. Because there's going to be more, again, especially now during the difficult economic times, there's going to be more and more scrutiny on spend. And we have to be able to show the ROI of our efforts. Who is or has been the most inspiring person in your life? Well, you have a little bit of a preview. So it's actually my mm -hmm. grandparents. This is my grandfather on my oh, yeah. mother's side. I see um, his picture behind you on the on the video as we're recording for our audience. Yeah. Yes. And they were Holocaust survivors. Um, my grandmother survived Auschwitz. My grandfather fought in the partisan army. And I just can't imagine making it through that and then still being able to laugh. And yet they did. Was it an acerbic wit? Yes. It was definitely a darkly informed comedy. But I think for me, it just showed me that no matter what happens, A, you'll be, you're stronger than you think you can survive it. B, there's probably a joke hiding in there, even when it feels like there shouldn't be. Uh, and C, that while there can be enormous evil in society, there still can be bright spots. And if you just stick it out a little bit longer, hopefully you'll reach that bright spot at the end. And, and, that tenacity, I think, is inside of me. It's probably in my DNA. That's a beautiful story, Shinny. Thanks for sharing it. And on that note, I will let you ask the last question because I have thrown you so many non-softballs in the last 40 minutes or so. So I'll give the last question to you. Jim, what makes you special? <laughs> oh, I didn't know that one was coming. <laughs> I hate this question too. And what I learned in terms of handling it is to actually reflect on what others say about me that I care about. And frankly, a bunch of people many years ago shared with me when I was at P&G, I got a couple random calls from good friends on the business side and personally saying, I think it's time for you to leave the company. Hmm. And I said, well, okay. And he said, we, you have a special gift of bringing out people's full potential and uplifting their spirits and inspiring them to do things that they never thought they could do. And I think you should take that thinking and share that on a bigger stage than the big stage you're on now. And a few of them said, we'll help you do it. So that was a catalyst for me to say, well, am I leveraging that gift day in and day out in my current job? I mean, I'm, yes, I was, but was I totally free to exercise it at 100% of my time? No. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I reflected on. And I think to this day, that's still gift I have. Where it came from and how it's evolved, that's a whole other podcast recording. 
but I do think that is an impact I have on people. And I realize that's something very special. And, uh, and I try to do that in my daily work. Well, I agree with what you're saying, because even in this short time, you know, I, I didn't give you any of the background information, but you were able to, through the power of the internet, find some things that are very core to who I am Mm -hmm. and correctly identify those things. And I would say this is the interview that pulled out more for me than maybe any other interview I've ever done. So I think that's a testament to the kind of ability that you have to see things in people. And I I appreciate getting the chance to chat with you. Oh, Shani, that's so sweet. We should close on that. This has been so fun and so thoughtful and for me, so inspiring. So I hope we get to see each other someday in person. And and I'd, I'd just like to get to know you even better than what we did in the last hour. Likewise. Thank you. That was my wonderful conversation with Shani. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one is understand your specialness, understand your own specialness, and understand your company's specialness. We talk about how difficult that question is to answer. Shani had trouble with it. So did I when she asked me about my specialness, but it's such a fundamental truth. We all need to understand what our special gift is and work to leverage that and also to work with what our company's special gift is and to tell that story. Second takeaway, it's a fundamental one. We've heard it before. Relationships are everything. Relationships are fundamental to business, fundamental to careers, and the relationships we build throughout our life and career are the richest part of what we do. So think about how you spend your days. Are you building relationships, trusting relationships as you run your business, run your brand day in and day out? And last, when I asked Jenny what was the most important characteristic for CMOs today, she quickly went to say, impact on business metrics. Those who can show their impact on the business metrics will be the ones who succeed. That is important every day, every year. It's especially important in the times we're going through right now. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.